I am not naive to the fact that are, there are people in this room today and 2023 was anything but victorious. And as you look back on what was a year possibly you wish to forget, there are more losses than wins. I said this the other day in men's prayer, but you have to understand something that victory is as much about the outcome as it is about the outlook. Sometimes you see teams that have suffered loss and the outcome says that they're a losing team. And if you look at them, the outlook is they are losers. Their shoulders are dropped. Their head is dropped. But the outcome for us may not be what we want, but our outlook can be one that says victory. Paul and Silas were in a prison in stocks and in bonds. It didn't look like victory, but they didn't let the outcome dictate their outlook. Instead, they started singing praises unto God. And when they changed their outlook, all of a sudden God did what only he can do. And he stepped into the outcome. And where there looked like there was losses, God said, not today. Victory comes in the name of Jesus. He said, stand still and see that the battle is not ours. It's the Lord's. Sometimes we have to realize that it's not about what we can do, but it's putting our trust in a God who has never failed us, who has never forsaken us, who doesn't take the day off. And so we can walk into 2024 with our shoulders back and our head up and realize we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are victorious today. Come on. Could you just for a little longer praise it, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Praise him like the victory has already come. Praise him like the battle has already been won. Praise him like you've already received your healing. Come on. I think we can do a little bit better than that. That might have been good in 2023, but in 2024, we're going to turn up our praise. We're going to turn up our worship. We're not going to come into the house of God and be apathetic or complacent, but we're going to realize that when we gather together, anything can happen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Woo. Hallelujah. There's victory in the name of Jesus. There's victory in the name of Jesus. I'm speaking victory over your family this year. I'm speaking victory over that addiction this year. I'm speaking victory over that illness that you've been suffering with this year. Because God can do it. He can do more than we could ever ask or more than we could ever think. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Amen. Wow. Feels good in this place today. Amen.
I am thankful for what God has done, but I am hopeful for what he is about to do. Amen. Man, it is so good to see all of you here today. If this is your first time with us, I just say a heartfelt welcome. I would love to connect with you after service. And uh, let's, let's, let's make a commitment that this year is going to be a year of progressive growth. If you, uh, and the music team, thank you. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you would want to turn with me to Job 37. I, I will say this. Uh, if you didn't um, get a chance, and I'm not normally one to promote a message I preached, but if you want to get an idea of where we're going as a church in this upcoming year, and you weren't here last week Sunday, I know there's uh, still a number of people that are out sick. Uh, would you do me a favor? Would you go back and would you listen to that message? Um, this is a year of health, and it may not make sense when you look at the areas we're focusing on, but if you listen to that message, hopefully it will uh, give you a, a picture of where we're going as a church. And I would then again ask that you do whatever you can in your, your power to be here next week, Saturday. It's from 9 to 1 o'clock. We're going to be respective, uh, respectful of your time. But we're also going to make room for, for Jesus to, to move how he wants to move. And there's been a lot of work put into this. We've, we've been very intentional about the topics that we're addressing. And our goal is to provide you with practical tools, not just to sermonize or to, to, to preach a thought, but to allow you to walk out of that uh, four-hour togetherness with tools to go deeper in your relationship with God. And so if you would make that a priority, and uh, we have four more that will be taking place over the course of the year, and if you would just grab a save the date card and, and mark those out in your calendar, not all of them will be over the weekend. Our next one in March will be just on a Sunday and into the afternoon. And so they're going to all look differently, um, but they're all going to be uh, put together with you in mind, with helping you grow this year in your relationship with God, because it's our desire that we uh, become a healthy church. Amen. Amen. Job 37, verse number 9. I had been thinking about what I might speak on this first Sunday of January, and the Lord just spoke something very clear. I don't know how the Lord speaks to you, but the Lord is not always very descriptive to me, and He just said, talk to the church on icebergs. And... Um, and so I did a, a search in the Bible, and it turns out that icebergs aren't mentioned in Scripture. And, um, and I, I said on, on, I think it was Wednesday night or Thursday night to my wife, I said, I think I've been chasing something that may have just been the pizza. And, and she said, just, just go to bed, and you know God's going to bring clarity to it. And he did just that. And, and so Job chapter 37, verse number 9, it may not make sense on how this correlates with spiritual health, but just, just stay with me today. Job says this, this is actually Elihu speaking in response to Job. Job 37 and verse 9, he said, From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds of the north. Everybody say, oh no. It is here. Verse 10, by the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen. 
Today I want to talk with you on this topic. I'm not talking about global warming, but it might sound that way. And I want to speak to you on this simple thought, when icebergs melt. When icebergs melt. Would you set your Bibles down? Would you lift your hands with me? And would you just ask that the Lord would open your heart and open your mind in these next few moments to receive what he would have for you? Would you lift your voice with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence that's in this place. God, I pray we don't take it for granted in 2024 that an almighty God would come into this room and would occupy it and would speak and meet with his people. And so, Lord, tonight you have our attention. You have, Lord, our affection. I pray any distractions that would try to hinder the word of the Lord, I pray those would fall flat. And I pray that our hearts would be fertile soil for the word to take root. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you have done. We give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and greet your neighbor and you can be seated. When icebergs melt, they are magnificent to behold, immense in size and breathtaking in beauty. They have been referred to as the Earth's frozen wonder. And glaciers, with their mesmerizing blue hues, intricately sculpted ice formations, and unhurried movement, mold landscapes across continents over the course of centuries. The, the smallest glacier is said to be around 25 acres in size, with the largest being a staggering 600,000 square miles in eastern Antarctica. The formation of these ice giants is a gradual process of snow accumulation and compression eventually with time transforming into layers upon layers of ice. And as you can see in the majesty of these pictures, they occupy about 10% of the earth and are visible in every continent. But these incredible wonders have a marvel that periodically occurs called calving. This is when pressure and stress come upon a glacier. It's when external forces like the ocean's current or the temperature begin to rise. The stress of these external forces can weaken the ice on the glacier's edge, causing it to break off, forming what we know as an iceberg. Now an iceberg, once that happens, becomes separated from the massive glacier and begins to float away, looking significantly smaller, detached, and ultimately destined to melt in a matter of time. And Elihu, proclaiming God's majesty to Job, said that it's the breath of God that forms or creates the ice. He said, it's God's breath that freezes the water. That these beautiful formations have intelligent design because they've been formed by the very breath of the Creator. 
But long before Elihu would speak this revelation to Job, Scripture would record another event in which the breath of God would be on display. And it's recorded in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7. And it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. It was God's breath that made a pile of dirt into a living being. And and Adam, the first man, wasn't a product of evolution. He wasn't the product of a big bang. But rather, he was a product of divine design and the breath of an almighty creator. And as a result, in the garden, we see a closeness. There's a communion. Man had the spirit of God within them. However, something sadly took place in the garden that altered the trajectory and direction of humanity. Man disobeyed the command of God and sin entered into the equation, which created a separation from God and ultimately a spiritual death. That the very communion and source that gave life now apart, leaving man to drift through the quagmire of their sin. But but something happened that day in the garden when punishment was being leveled. Mercy beamed through judgment. And, And in the midst of darkness, of man's failure, God said this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And all at once... All was not lost. For the prophetic messianic proclamation was made that day of a redemption that would come. And so for millenniums, man floated in a sea of sinfulness, only coming so close to the source. There there were solutions, but they were only temporary. There were opportunities, but they were fleeting. There were moments, but they became few and far in between. John penned this about the state of humanity. He said, man loved darkness because their deeds were evil. But then there came a day, one we just recently celebrated, where light broke through the darkness, where hope entered into a hopeless situation, where the creator of the universe stepped into time and robed himself in flesh to come and save his people from their sins. And Jesus would come with the intent to pay the ultimate price to restore relationship with his creation. And John would say it this way. He would say, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. He would also say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That the love of God was so relentless that he put on humanity and came to earth to die for our sins. But, but here's the beauty. He didn't die and stay dead. No. But on the third day, when they went to the tomb to find him, he was not there. For he had risen. And, and we now serve a God who is alive and alive forevermore. And so today we can gather on a Sunday morning and we can celebrate the good news. The death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there have been many others who have come and have talked a good talk, and they died but stayed dead. But our Savior, He died, but only three days, and then He rose, and now He lives and is alive forevermore.
And prior to his ascension into heaven, Jesus would instruct his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. I'm sure, think about it, I'm sure they were confused. I'm sure they were wrestling with the complexities of all that had just happened. However, their obedience to the master's word led them to an upper room. And they stayed in that room, and I I imagine they began to try to figure out what they were waiting for. One day turned into two, and one week turned into two. And we know that it was on the day of Pentecost, as Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 says, that they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting And appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and sat upon each one of them. And verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. That waiting paid off because what Jesus said is, hey, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send one who's going to be with you and inside of you. Yes, you had Emmanuel, God, with us, but now you have the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God living inside of you. And what happened in an upper room quickly spilled out. People began to take notice. And all of a sudden, accusations started to be leveled upon the 120. They're drunk. Look at these individuals. They used to be the disciples of Jesus. And here, it's not even the afternoon, and they're already intoxicated. And Peter, hearing the accusations, took it as an opportunity to bring clarity amongst the confusion. And he said, they're not drunk as you suppose seeing but it's the third hour. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. That in the last day, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He he began to speak to them and say, hey, you're the ones who crucified Christ. This is what the prophets of old had spoke of. And when he came, you rejected him. Leaving them to ask a question that is still being asked today because conviction wells up in their heart. And they say to him, what shall we do? We understand that we messed up. We we understand that we fell short. We understand that we crucified the Christ. But what can we do about it now? Peter doesn't waste time. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Understand this. This was the salvation that was foreshadowed in the tabernacle. This was the salvation that Isaiah and Joel and Ezekiel and Zechariah would talk about as they looked to this promise where there would be a heart of stone that would be turned into a heart of flesh. Zephaniah said he would give them a pure language, a language that's under filed from from the garbage and the filth and the uncleanliness of our language. He said he's going to get and put inside of them a pure language. This was the, the, the salvation that Jesus would tell Nicodemus, you have to be born of the water and the spirit in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Peter boldly declared it. He said, repent! But don't just stop at repentance. Every one of you needs to be baptized in the only saving name of Jesus Christ. It matters the way in which you are baptized. You are baptized under the water because we are buried with him in baptized. And when you are baptized, we call out the name of Jesus, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Those are just titles, but his name is Jesus. 
And then he said, you don't stop there. Then when you come out, you're going to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And how do you know you have the Holy Ghost? The evidence will be that you'll begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. And the answer to the question is still the same today. I want you to understand something. You may have changed, but God has not changed. Culture may have changed, but his word remains the same. So as things get darker, as the culture warms up, we don't water down our doctrine. We don't step back. There are not multiple ways to God. There is still only one way. There's still only one truth. There is still only one life. However, there was something else that was birthed that day in the upper room. It became the epicenter for a mighty movement. And that birth and movement was the church. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. He said, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. He said it doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your, 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 your background. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what, what, what you think you are. We're all, when we've been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, we're baptized into one body. There, there's one body. There's not many bodies. That, that means there's one church. There's not many churches. Just like there's one way. There's not many ways. This isn't an A, B, or C option. He said, no, I, I have one body, the church. There's not a multiplicity of them. I, I know there are, are, are geographically buildings that are assembled all across the, the world, but, but we know that the church is not a building. The church is the collective body of believers that assemble together. And, and so whether we assemble here or we assemble in your house, that's where the church is. And there's one church. That's the body of Christ. Much like a glacier, it's a large, unmovable force. We just sang about it today. I want you to know that the church is a victorious church. It's a force that's destined for heaven. It's a force that no devil in hell can come against. It's a force that is not tied to culture or controlled by the whims of Congress. It's a church that the living God purchased with his blood. Paul would continue with his description of the church by saying in the very next verse, For in fact, the body is not one member but many. It's one body, but there are many members. Those members have stories. Those members have purpose. Each of those members have purpose. There's no member that is purposeless. There's no member that just is meant to just drift by. No, every member in the body has a role. Every member in the body has a place. But those members also have autonomy. Much like an iceberg that breaks from a glacier, if we're not moving in the Spirit, if we're not connected to the Spirit, if we're not daily submitting to the Spirit, the carnality of our flesh and the pull of the enemy will always desire us to separate from the body. It's the Spirit that pulls us in. It's our carnality and the enemy that pulls us away. And Galatians would talk about these two competing forces, the spirit and the flesh, and how they war one another 
Well, they, they want control. They're, they're trying to, to trying to get control over you. So your flesh, your carnality, carnality your carnal nature, your, your sin nature, it's stained and it's, it's evil. And it wants to do the wrong things, but the Spirit says, no, don't, don't. And so there's war that goes on between the two. Paul would say, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He said, the answer is found that if you live in the Spirit, you don't have to worry about the flesh. If you live to the Spirit... And that's our goal in 2024. We want to become a spiritually healthy church. I shared these statistics last week, but allow me to repeat them. In 2020, 47% of Americans said that they belonged to a church, which was down from 70% but 20 years prior. It was the first time that a poll found that less than half of Americans belonged to a church. On the rise, I, I said this again last week, is a group of people called the nuns or non-religious. And it's growing year over year with it being, as of two years ago, 30% of our culture. Doesn't say I'm agnostic, doesn't say I'm atheist. They say, I'm just non-religious. Yeah, there's probably a God and, and I'll go to him if I need him, but I don't need the church. 2019, approximately 30,000 or let me back that up. In 2019, approximately 3,000 Protestant churches were started in the U U.S. But also at the same time, 4,500 churches closed their doors. Sadly, churches and church attendance are on the decline. However, what I didn't say last week is that's not the way it is everywhere. I was privileged to go to our general conference last year in our district or general superintendent got up and, and read the report on the United Pentecostal Church International. And for the last couple years, as mainstream denominations have declined, the United Pentecostal Church has been on the rise. We're, we're starting more churches. We're seeing more countries unlocked. I think as it stands today, there are only six or seven churches or countries that have not access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have more constituents than ever before. We have more licensed ministers than ever before. And the denominal worlds are looking at the Pentecostal church and they're wondering why. As a matter of fact, in June of last year, Ed Stetzer, the dean of Talbot School of Theology, a Baptist pastor, wrote an article and it was entitled this, Pentecostals, how do they keep growing while all the other groups are declining? Time doesn't permit me to read it. However, the conclusion that Stetzer makes is this. Every denomination is declining. And he begins to give numbers. He said, the Baptists have declined by 11%. The Methodists have declined by 19%. The Catholic Church has dropped by over 20%. The Lutheran Church has declined by over 40%. But the Pentecostals keep growing. And as he wrestles with what he sees in the world, he comes to this conclusion, and I quote his words and not mine. He said, the reason for this is obvious, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He said it's obvious why the Pentecostals are growing while everyone else is declining because they have something that's not just external but something that's living within them that is alive inside of them that's drawing them, that's revealing to them that's leading them and guiding them. Yeah. Whew. 
Jesus said it this way. He said, the spirit of truth will lead you and guide you. It's the spirit of God that opens our eyes and gives us revelation. Am I saying that we're better than any other denomination? No, not at all. But I am saying there's something that happens when the spirit of God comes inside of us. It quickens things. It reveals things. It shows us things. It prompts things. He would continue by saying this. Pentecostal believers in churches constantly emphasize spiritual practice and engagement that is deeply personal which helps cultivate a more robust faith. Stagnation is not as compatible with a real spirit-filled experience. He said there's something different about that denomination. There's something different about those people, and it's the Spirit of God that's living inside of them. I, I pray this doesn't cause us to become conceited or complacent. But, but rather, I hope what it does to us is it awakens a deeper desire inside of us in 2024 that says, I want more of that spirit. I want more of that power. I want more of his presence. I want a deeper faith than I ever had before. I want more relationship with God. I will not be satisfied with just a little bit of God. I will not just be satisfied with a little bit of his spirit. But I want everything that he would have for me. Paul, looking through the corridor of time, gave insight into the second coming of Jesus. We, we looked at the, the, the first letter he wrote to the Thessalonians, but what happens between the first letter and the second letter is confusion takes place. He told them in the first letter that, that Jesus would return as a thief in the night, but what ended up happening in the church is people began to say, it's already happened, he's come. And, and so Paul writes a second letter to them. The persecution is only intensified. Their witness is only growing, but there's confusion in the church. And he begins to let them know that, no, he hasn't come back. And then he says this to them in verse number 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2. He said, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. More specifically, he's talking about the spirit-filled church. We have to remember in 2024 that any time that we read the letters that Paul would write to churches, the context should always be through the lens that this is a spirit-filled church. This isn't a confused church. This isn't a church that is unsure about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. This is a church that is filled with the Spirit. And so when he writes to the Corinthian church and he talks to them about the gifts of tongues and the interpretation of tongues, he's saying, you already have the power of God inside of you, but let me show you some giftings that can be used as a result of that power. It's like a house. You can have a house and you can bring all the electrical tools you want into it, but until you have power flowing through the house, those tools are of no use. And so he's talking to a church that has the Spirit of God in them, and he's saying, because you have the Spirit of God in you, you can have a word of prophecy, you can have a word of wisdom, you can have a word of knowledge, you can have discerning of spirits, you can begin to see things in the spirit world. But you have to understand, I have friends that are good people. I'm sure they are. But he's speaking to a spirit-filled church. And these are gifts that are poured out on spirit-filled people. He would later say to Timothy, one of his last letters, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Jesus is coming back and Paul said, before he comes back, you'll, you'll be able to see it because there will be a departing from the faith. 
people will become lukewarm in their faith. Sadly, there would be some that were filled with the Spirit, but in the last days, they'll walk away. They had a relationship with God, but at some point, they began to ignore it. That They had a strong faith at one point, but at some point, they began to abandon it. They celebrated doctrine, but at some point, they began to compromise and water it down. They had a love for His world, but they word, but they failed to apply it. They had a desire to go to church, but eventually stopped going. And the reality is that this didn't happen overnight. I've been living for God for 37 years, and I've been involved in a church here in New Berlin for the past 27 years, and I've seen people that have come, and I've seen people that have gone. And it never just happened overnight. There was a slow fade. There there was letting go of things that they used to hold tightly to. There was becoming looser on things that they used to be firm about. There was getting lax on their commitment, things that they used to never do. The reality is, is it doesn't just happen, but rather drifting occurs. Separation takes place and distance happened. What, What I find interesting about icebergs is the dramatic transformation that occurs when they break from the glacier. Obviously, they're, they're no longer a part of this massive ice formation, but there are some dramatic changes in their attributes, distinguishing differences in their characteristics. And I think this can serve as a warning sign in our faith to ensure that we don't drift away. The first thing that you'll notice about icebergs when they break from the glacier is icebergs become concealed. When when an iceberg breaks from a glacier, 90% of it becomes concealed underwater with only 10% of it visible. It made me think of the life of Samson, a a tragic tale. Here's a man that the angel of the Lord comes to his parents And lets them know that they're going to give birth to a man of God. He would be a judge of Israel. From his birth, he was destined and and, and directed to take the Nazarite vow. Where he wouldn't touch a dead body. He would not shave his head and he would not drink wine nor eat grapes. And as, as a result, we see that Samson has incredible strength. That with his distinction comes strength. Hear me. With his purity comes strength. With his separation comes strength. And in an instant, he puts himself in a vulnerable place with Delilah, which leads to his hair being cut, his eyes plucked, and his ministry ruined. However, long before Samson found himself grinding at the millstone, long before he found himself in the arms of of Delilah. He found himself in a vineyard, the very place that contained the fruit that he was abstained from touching due to his vow. Long before he found himself with his eyes plucked out, he found himself reaching for honey and the very thing that he had vowed not to touch, the dead carcass of a lion. And scripture says in both places, he told not his parents. 
Here he is violating his covenant. And his parents say, where did you get that honey? Doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, this cloak of secrecy takes on Samson. And it wasn't just a bad decision that wound up having him in Delilah's arms, but it was a series of secrets, a series of concealment. I'm not naive to the fact that in this room, there's possibly vaults that, that contain secrets, addictions that are being battled in secret, struggles and issues that are being concealed, relational conflicts that are being covered up. And we come to church and we have perfected the art of the outward appearance. We become pharisaical where we can look the part and we can dance and we can jump and we can cry and we can say praise God. And when someone says, how are you doing? We can say, I'm doing good. I'm blessed. But the story that the inside tells is totally different. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, the outside you're whitewashed sepulchers, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. He said, you're just worried about outward holiness, and outward holiness is important. He said, but first take stock of the inside. First realize that inside needs to change, because if nothing changes inside, outside is just a practice. But if something happens inside, it will naturally come outside. Solomon would say, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. But, but what if today we brought them to light? I, if you ever studied out the old way that you would develop pictures, it, it, you would take the negative and, and you would be in a dark room. And in the dark room is where the negatives were developed. But if you brought light to that negative, it would destroy it. The same I think, coincides with secret sin. It's in the dark that our secret sins grow and overtake us. It's in the concealment that they grow. You know, I wonder if, if David saw the little cub when it was just small. I wonder if he saw the lion when it didn't oppose a threat to him. And he looked at it and he said, that's cute. And instead of killing what could have been a threat to his ministry down the road, he allowed it to live. And there he finds himself with all these sheep. He has more to lose now than he did back then. And there's a full-grown problem standing in his way. What if we said, I'm not going to let this grow when it's small, but I'm going to expose it as quickly as I can. It is not a sign of weakness to say, hey, I'm struggling. Listen, hear me today. It is not a sign of weakness for you to say, hey, I'm struggling with secret sin. I tell you what, you never will look stronger than when you stand up and say, I'm struggling and I need help. I can't do this by myself. I'm sick of relapsing. I'm sick of going through the cycles. I need God to come into my situation. And God says, listen, I've sent brothers and I've sent sisters that can help you. But if we allow ourselves to drift like an iceberg, only letting people see 10% of us, how can we be real? How can we do life together? How often has, has someone had a moral failing and people go, I never knew that. I, I had lunch with them. I, I went out to eat with them. They just acted like everything was fine. You can fool me. You can fool your brother, but I want you to know something today. You cannot fool God. 
You cannot fool God. You can come before him and you can act like everything's okay. You can posture yourself in religious uh, posture and say, God, I love you. And, and he, he hears all that, but he sees the hidden parts of your life. But what if today we said, I'm going to expose those things. I'm going to bring those things out of the darkness. I'm going to bring them. I'm going to take some radical changes in this new year because if I'm going to live victorious, I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. We're part of the body. We're the mass. And we're better together. Another thing about glaciers is if you study them out, I, I know a lot of them are on land, but the ones that are, are, are in the ocean, they're not moved by the current or the wind. Those glaciers are so massive that the current can't tell them where to go. Gravity, the, the laws of nature, the laws of God directs them. But an iceberg, when it breaks off, it's subject to the winds and the currents. Wherever the wind takes it, that's where it goes. Wherever the current is going, that's where it's subject to. Paul said it this way, till we come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plottings. You see, when we're not led by the Spirit and we distance ourselves from the body, we're subject to the current of culture. We're, we're subject. Whatever is trending becomes our reality. Whatever is being pushed becomes our religion. Whatever is popular becomes our ideology. Whatever we are inundating ourselves with becomes our identity. And that's why there's people that have separated themselves from the body and you see them now and you think, where did you get these thoughts? It doesn't make sense. They, 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 don't, they don't make sense with their ideas. It's so anti the word of God. It's so anti the scripture. And Paul says what happens is this. In, in Romans 1 and 25, he says, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. That, that's what happens. You see, when you get your salvation, you have the receipt. But if you're not careful, you can exchange it. And said, I, I bought the truth. Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. But some still keep the receipt in their pocket just in the event there's something better that comes along. And so they say, this isn't working out. I'd like to make an exchange. And he said, in that moment, you exchange the truth for a lie. That's why there are those today that have walked away from God. And if you talk to them, I've seen people who the issue of why they left the church was standards. And now you talk to them today and they say, I don't know if God's one. I don't know if God's three. I don't know if God's seven. And they're so confused and they're so twisted in their mind. I've talked to saints that I've, I've prayed through to the Holy Ghost. And now they say, I don't think tongues is necessary. But it's all throughout Scripture. Yeah, but, but I have friends and family that they're good people and they don't have the Holy Ghost. And so you're telling me that, that, that because they don't have the Holy Ghost and I do, that I'm somehow... No, I'm not saying that. It doesn't matter what people decide to do. It only matters what the Word of God says. We exchange doctrine for deception. I've learned and I've said this over this pulpit before that deception looks a whole lot like revelation. And there's so many people that have re revelation, deep revelations, and what they don't realize is that God is giving them up and allowing deception to come in. 
And there's been people that have, have walked away, and if you look at their lives now, everything that they used to stand for, they're doing the opposite of. Marriage, does it really need to be between a man and a woman? Over the course of the last 15 years, I've, I've watched mainstream pastors of massive churches become so, come out and be so uh, staunch that marriage is between one man and one woman, and I've seen them now 10 years later, and they're going, well, I don't know, Scripture doesn't really... And, and as, as the winds blow, as the winds go, they go with it. But, but that's the beauty of the spirit-filled believer because it says in Acts chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 2, that, that the wind of the spirit blew, the, the rushing mighty wind, that's the wind that we're subject to, brothers and sisters. When we're, when we're connected to the source, it's the wind of the Holy Ghost that leads us and guides us. It's the wind of his spirit that says, hey, don't go there and do go there. I want to be led by his spirit in 2024. I want the wind of his spirit to blow in this church and to lead us. I want the wind of his spirit to blow in my family. Last thing we see about icebergs is probably the most obvious, but it's worth saying. Icebergs are isolated. They float all by themselves, detached from the glaciers they used to be one with. Separated from what they used to identify with. A fraction of what they once were. And today, if we, if we separate ourselves, that, that's the, the number one goal of the enemy is to pull you away and to isolate you. We're, we're known as sheep and he's the shepherd. But an interesting factor about sheep is that when sheep are injured, their, their propensity is to separate themselves from the pack. They isolate themselves. They, they go away from the healthy sheep. And there are some today, some that used to be here, and they allow things to isolate them from the house of God. That the early church was marked by togetherness. That the words or phrase one another is used 59 times in the New Testament. That they served one another. They forgave one another. They honored one another. They encouraged one another. They prayed for one another. They, 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 they did life together. They didn't just believe in, in coming together one day a week. No, they broke bread and went house to house. There was community. That's why we say we're faith and family meet. We are a family of God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews would say, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. He says, as you see the day of the Lord approaching, there is going to be some that are going to drift away. And so to ensure that you don't drift away, get to the house of God. To ensure that you don't drift away. Don't forsake the assembling of coming together. I, I get so, so, so confused when people say, I love Jesus. I just don't like his church. Scripture says that he's the head of the body, which is the church. So you can't love Jesus and hate his church. It's speaking out of both sides of your mouth. When you love Jesus by product, you'll love his church. And if you don't like his church, you don't like Jesus. And so you get people who say, well, well, you know what? My pastor is on YouTube. No, he's not. You get people who pull away and they look on YouTube and they look on the internet and they get so confused. They don't know what's up from down, what's right from left. 
But that's why God gave us community. That's why he gave us brothers and sisters. That's why he gave you a pastor. Because iron sharpens irons. And when we come together, something supernatural takes place. When the body comes together, it has the properties to heal itself. When the body comes together, it has the ability to bear one another's burdens. When the body comes together. Why don't you stand with me? I think it's a good place to stop. Would you just lift your hands with me in this place? I want to be connected in 2024. I want to be connected in 2024. I want to be connected to the Spirit. I want to be connected to His body. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us. It was the most famous of its kind, discussed within the pages of history, reimagined in movies and documentaries. It was in the early hours of April 15th, 1912, that a mighty iceberg would bring down the Titanic. Most are unsure of the actual size, but according to survivors, the iceberg was estimated to be between 50 and 100 feet tall and 400 feet wide. And that's only what could be seen. This massive ice formation would bring down a ship that was considered and claimed to be indestructible. However, it would be roughly two weeks later that the iceberg would meet the warm waters of the Gulf Stream and would completely melt away. What once was a force to be reckoned with would eventually succumb to the environment it found itself in. Yes, it was strong. Yes, it was impressive. But it drifted away from the source that it came from and eventually melted into the environment it was in. Long before that would happen, the writer of Hebrews would say, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. I've seen this happen time and time again. I still call out their names in prayer. I still try my best to reach out to them. Students that were in my youth groups, friends that I went to school with, individuals that I looked up to, they were my heroes. They were sold out for Christ. They served in leadership. They had a love for God's word and his church all of a sudden they started drifting away. So on this first Sunday of 2024, I'm reaching for those that maybe have caught themselves drifting. Maybe unbeknownst to you, you've just taken a step back you've started to hide some things. You've been battling some issues. Maybe your normal response would be to reach forward, but instead this time you're just pulling back. Maybe you find yourself coming to church and as the preacher preaches, doubt keeps coming to your head. You keep questioning the things that you hear. I'm not saying it's wrong to question, but 
But maybe instead of leaning into it and studying the Word of God, you find yourself just separating yourself. Your prayer life is not what it used to be. You can't remember the last time you picked up the Word of God. You don't remember the last time you spoke in tongues. Remember the last time you came to an altar and tarried longer than three minutes. But I wonder if today you would take a step in the right direction and say, although I've been drifting, today is a new day. I'm coming back to the house of worship. I'm coming back to my relationship with God. I'm going to reconnect with the Spirit today. I'm going to reconnect with my brothers and my sisters today. I'm going to reconnect with purpose. I'm going to reconnect to the church. If you want that in 2024, I would like to invite you to this altar. And I wonder if you could take some time to just reconnect with God. Would you do that with me today as I pray, Lord Jesus? Would you touch every person under the sound of my voice? God, we can deceive. We can put on a front. We can act as if everything's okay, but Lord, the reality is you know the heart. You're the one who searches the heart. You're the one that is well aware of every hidden thing. And so God, I pray today as we posture ourselves in a place of repentance, as we posture ourselves in a place, Lord, let us present ourselves a living sacrifice. God, I pray that we would not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Let us not be conformed to the temperature of this climate, but Lord, let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds this year. And let us prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of you. Would you touch these people today, God? Would you strengthen their bonds with you, God? Would you reawaken a hunger? Reawaken a desire for the Spirit, God. Lord, let us learn to tarry in your presence. Lord, let us not just reach out on Sundays. Let us not just reach out when we're in need, but Lord, let us cultivate daily moments in your presence. It's in your presence, God, we'll find the strength that we need. It's, it's in your presence we find, Lord, the strength to make it through. Oh, come on today. We're coming back to where we found our first love. We're, we're, we're going to the place where we found Christ. Like Abraham, like Jacob, we're returning to that altar where everything changed in our life. Where God called us, where God changed us place of remembrance where he brought us from the miry clay and we're saying God let me never forget this help me never to drift away God Lord I pray every carnal mind Lord would be met by the spirit today Lord every doubting heart would be met by the truth today God Lord every skeptic Lord would be met by your word God Lord, let weakness be replaced with strength. Lord, let apathy be replaced with hunger and desire. Lord, I pray within us would be a hunger, Lord, and a thirst for righteousness. Let us hunger more for you than the carnal things of this world. God, I pray you'd search us and you would show us, you would reveal to us today so that we can be more like you, Jesus. 
you go a little further? Would you step into this? Spirit In the name of Jesus, I pray. In the name of Jesus. I release my ministry to start praying with those around the altar. Spirit break. 